uh, in this church called Lineage, where we look through the uh, four women, the five women, excluding Mary, um, in the Bible, uh, that are in the lineage in Matthew chapter one. And the, the first of these women is Tamar, um, and she kind of sets the scene for the rest of these women to be introduced in, into the lineage of Jesus. Uh, and the story of Tamar um, doesn't really seem to belong in the Bible. Kind of seems to belong to like an episode of Maury rather than like in the Bible, you are the father. I've kind of found this chapter really difficult to wrestle with and to, to, to speak on and, and, and go, God, where are you in this? Um, because it's such a confronting passage, because it happens right in the middle of a story of, of great difficulty, but also great triumph. And it seems like, man, what's the purpose of this? And also, why is it interrupting a, a better story? Um, and I want to recognize that there are stories that are in this, uh, themes in this story that are actually really difficult to understand with our uh, Western Christian perspective, uh, that we go, ooh, that's really not, does not sit comfortable with me. And it really, maybe we shouldn't be even speaking about this in church. See, the story starts right in the middle of Joseph's story. Uh, we, have, we, we meet Joseph for the first time in chapter 37 of, of Genesis. And uh, uh, Joseph is, is kind of like the, the favoured younger kid. Um, you know, his, his dad, Jacob, really, really likes him. And he, he goes and tells on his brothers when they do the wrong thing all the time. So classic younger kid syndrome, youngest kid syndrome. Um, and his brothers really don't like him to the point that they go, I reckon we're going to kill him. Um, when he comes out here, let's kill him. And his the oldest brother goes, hey, let's not kill him. Let's just chuck him in this well. And he's thinking, I'm gonna go get this guy out after. And then Judah, the guy from this story, goes, hold on a second, we're not gonna gain anything from killing him. Why don't we just sell him? Why don't we just sell our brother? That sounds like a much, much better idea. And so uh, we end Genesis chapter 37 with Joseph being sold into Potiphar's house in Egypt. And then we begin chapter 38, not at Potiphar's house, but a story of Judah going to Canaan and getting a Canaanite wife and having three children. And it seems like such an out of place story in this part of the Bible that early scholars believed that it was an editorial insertion. But now scholars believe actually this was a really important part of the Bible and it traces Jesus' lineage back all the way back to Tamar, but also it tells us something really, really important about the history of who Jesus is and who he's always been and a story of, of radical change in the life of Judah through awful circumstances that uh, he's kind of the, the main antagonist in. And so Tamar is this woman who's dealt this really, really rough hand. She's married into like the most dysfunctional family in the Bible. Um, her dad, Jacob, um, who I'm named after, um, is a liar and a deceiver. Um, thanks, mum. <laughs> Um, uh, lies to his own brother to steal the birthright then lies to his own father to, to steal the birthright um, and then has a whole bunch of children the uh, first three who were disqualified from the inheritance uh, one for trying to sleep with his uh, dad's concubine and the other two for doing really unspeakable acts uh, trying to seek vengeance um, on their sister uh, and so Jude is now like kind of the dude who's supposed to inherit the kingdom uh, and uh, we see that uh, he's the person who had came up with the idea to sell his brother. Um, and so, and then, and then abandoned his family to go live an awesome Canaanite life that is totally outside of um, God's vision for him. And so it doesn't really get more dysfunctional than that in terms of family dynamics. And so Tamar enters into this family uh, as a husband, uh, as a wife of uh, his first son, Ur. Um, and uh, we don't really know a lot about Ur because all the Bible really says is he was super sinful and God killed him. Um, 
we don't know what he did. Uh, it seems his actions were unimportant. But what we do know is that he's dead. Uh, and in, in this culture, if your husband dies and you don't have any children, there's some suspicion on you, but it seems that there wasn't enough to like kick her out of the family. And so um, Judah goes, hey, uh, go to your brother's wife, doesn't name her Tamar, go to your brother's wife and go sleep with her um, so that you, know, you can have some uh, children by him. Uh, and uh, Onan Onin, uh, was responsible for this because of a, a law called the Leverate Law. I'm going straight into this. Um, the Leverate Law, le- le- Levi uh, means uh, brother-in-law. And so it's, this, uh, uh, it's actually an obligation at this point, and it's defined as a law later in, in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 10, which I think we have on the screen um, in very small text. I'm not going to read it out, um, but it's up there if you'd like to, to read it. But essentially it says um, the first child um, that Onan has by Tamar belongs to Ur's family and not his. And so he's going to inherit Ur's portion of the inheritance. Now, Onan being the uh, son of his father goes, mm, that's not going to do. I want to inherit half of my father's stuff. So every time I sleep with Tamar, I'm not going to, uh, I'm going to spill my seed on the ground uh, because I don't want to be the father of a son that is not mine. Uh, and so God goes, hey, that's totally like outside of your responsibility. You're supposed to do this. It's the right thing to do. You're also going to die. Um, <laughs> And so at this point, uh, Judah goes, hmm, two of my sons died when they got married to Tamar. So I think maybe it's Tamar's fault because I'm so spiritually blind to the sinful uh, poverty of my own family that I cannot see the sin of my two sons and only recognize that it is Tamar, the only living member who could be culpable. And so here's what I'm gonna do. Tamar, you can totally get married to Sheila, but he's kind of too young. And so just wait until he's like a little bit older. Go live as a widow in your father's house and that'll be okay. And secretly he goes, I'm absolutely not doing that. I'm absolutely not gonna marry you to my son because I'm scared that you're gonna kill him. I'm scared that he's gonna die too because I'm gonna blame you for that. And so I wanna pause here because this is the kind of hand that Tamar has dealt, one that is full of shame and guilt that is not her own, a fully innocent young girl who has been abused, who has been mistreated and blamed for things that are so far outside of her control and her, her, her problem. Um, and at this point, I imagine she's at the, the lowest that she could possibly be in her life, disgraced and sent back to her father, probably the talk of the town. Um, and this is the part where, uh, where the, the narrative kind of pauses and time seems to forget Tamar. Judah certainly forgets Tamar. The people around her certainly seem to forget Tamar. And I wanted to say this is really exceptionally disappointing what happens next in this narrative because um, Tamar is forced to do something that she shouldn't have to do because she has been lied to, because she has been abused, because she has been neglected, because the responsibility is on Judah to allow her to do what she is supposed to do, which is to continue the lineage. And this is an important theme I think we, we might need to capture before we understand the story. The lineage of God, the lineage of Abraham comes through the line of Judah. And so without Tamar having a child, having a son, the lineage of Abraham stops at Judah. We never get to David. We never get to Moses. We never get to Jesus. And so this is really important because Judah is neglecting his responsibility as leader of his family, as the chief heir of his family to do what he is supposed to do and raise up the name of Abraham, raise up the sons of Abraham to lead to the generation of the Messiah. And so what I believe happens here is, uh, 
It's awful, but God's hands all over it. So Tamar faithfully goes back to her father's house as a widow, a widow who has no sons, no property, no rights, um, is totally abandoned as a, a t- from a family that she should totally be belonging to. Um, and at this point, um, we, the, the narrative continues on. Judah's wife dies. He mourns for one week. Um, and then we get to the sheep shearing festival. So um, it's not just simply he goes to shear a sheep. There's a big party involved. There's a Canaanite festival. And if it's a Canaanite festival, that means there's sex involved. That means there's drinking involved. That means there's revelry involved, revelry involved because there was a, a Canaanite cult of prostitute worship. They said, hey, if you go and sleep with these prostitutes that are cult prostitutes, you will be able to increase the prosperity of your land by growing more crops and by having more livestock. Um, and the, the way that Judah acts in this case shows that it's probably wasn't the first time that Judah did this, but it's probably the first time he did this because he was sad about his wife and sought comfort from another woman. And so she hears Judah's going down to town. Maybe this is 10 years past, maybe this is five. We don't really know, but it's a long enough time past that she has had time to think, time to wait and says, I'm not being passively acted upon anymore. I'm not a passive observer, a passenger in the things that happen in my life. This is what I'm, I'm owed to be a part of the family. I'm supposed to be a part of this family. I've been abandoned, neglected, and I'm making the decision to do what Judah is supposed to do and take responsibility for the line of Judah to continue on his lineage. And so therefore, I'm gonna take off my widow's garb. I'm gonna cover my face so Judah doesn't recognize me. I'm gonna go set up a tent at the side of the road where prostitutes stay. And I'm gonna offer myself sexually to my father-in-law. Now this leverate law, uh, or leverate obligation could be fulfilled by a father-in-law. The, the key here is lineage and the lineage comes from Judah as well as from his sons. And so it's not so far removed from the cultural and social context that it was okay for him to impregnate her and give her, him children. Um, but it was really odd that she had to do it and actually awful that she had to do it pretending to be a prostitute. And so Judah uh, comes down, he sees her and he asks, can I sleep with you? And she says, what are you going to give me? Or, uh, you know, what, what's, the, what's the price you're going to give me? And he goes, a young goat clearly doesn't have it on him at the moment. Okay, that's actually kind of a high price for, for, what, for what's being offered here. Um, so, so what are you going to give me to guarantee it? And at this point he says, what do you want? And she goes, I'll have your seal, I'll have your cord and I'll have your rod. Now, these three things, the seal, that's his signature. Um, the staff, that's a symbol of authority. And so we get a reflection back to Esau in the way he reacts with Jacob and interacts with Jacob, where Esau goes, I'm so hungry. I've just got a physical need that I really need fulfilled right now. Who cares about my birthright? Who cares about my responsibility? Just give me what I want. I'll give you whatever you want. So he gives all of these things to her, key identifying markers of who Judah is, um, and impregnates her, and then she goes along her way and dresses back up in her widow's guard and waits. And so we see there's this, um, this pattern in the Old Testament, um, one that is repeated again and again of God's people who choose to intermingle with cultures that are not their own in order to circumvent the commandments of the Bible. In Canaan, it was not immoral to solicit a prostitute, but in Israel it was. In fact, we see Judah's friend go from the sheep shearing party to go pay the prostitute, because it was so normal for them. We can imagine this is also a scenario that has happened a few times before. 
1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Bad company corrupts good morals because Judah was not in the company of wise older counsel, of good friends who knew what was right for him. He consistently and constantly chose the wrong thing for him because he was pursuing the pleasures of the world. It highlights why God calls his people to be holy and set apart because it is so easy to be enticed one step at a time into sin. It starts with marrying a Canaanite woman and then having children by her and then one step after one step and now I'm hiring a prostitute to go and fulfill my needs because I'm lonely on the way to go shear my sheep. And so uh, his friend goes in uh, here at the beginning, his friend goes back to um, uh, the road, looks for the prostitute, finds none there, asks some people around, hey, is there a shrine prostitute here? They go, hmm, there's been none here. Why, why are you asking? Um, goes back and goes, hey, I brought that goat there. Um, she wasn't there. Also, they said there wasn't a shrine prostitute. So just to clarify, definitely not my fault if you can't find her. And Judah in his wisdom goes, man, let's just not look for this anymore. Lest we collectively, because I'm roping you into this as culpable of my sin as well, become the laughing stock. And it's not that he was ashamed of his prostitution, is he was ashamed that he paid such a high price for something that he deemed to be low value and was tricked by somebody and it would reduce his reputation in the community if they found out. And so three months pass and Judah hears word of Tamar being pregnant. Um, and uh, there are two kind of readings of Judah's response here. One's of righteous indignation. Um, she's promised to Sheila. She committed adultery. She's gone and played the harlot and slept around, perhaps because she maybe felt like she had to because money was a factor when you're a, when you're a widow. Uh, but he doesn't care. And he goes, let's burn her. Now the punishment for prostitution was stoning and burning was a much higher consequence for this. And so it often happens that when we are guilty of deep sin, we are much harsher on the sin of other people. And so here we see Judah, one reading of Judah is, I am very harsh on the sin of her because I am also deeply sinful. The other reading of this is that uh, Judah is really excited about this because the problem's decided to resolve itself. If I can kill my daughter-in-law Tamar, I don't have to deal with her anymore. Sheila can go and marry somebody else. I don't have to worry about my lineage anymore. Um, and, and it's all gonna be good. It's all kind of worked out neatly and I can put a little bow on it at the end. So she calls up Tamar to come uh, and, uh, and, and, and be burned and, and basically go through a trial where he is the judge, jury and executioner. But Tamar brings receipts. <laughs> Using the exact same words that Judah uses to tell Jacob that his son is dead, she tells, uh, boldly challenges the righteous front of Judah, the, the mask that he's pretending, the bold man, the righteous man, the, the honourable man that he's pretending to be. She challenges it directly to his face, not through angry indignation, not through frustration, not through uh, an angry tweet, by through simply laying the truth out in front of him and saying, you decide what justice you're gonna meet here. And so she says, I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And here's the words, examine them. The same words he uses to deceive his father. Whose signet ring and rod and staff are these? Judah can continue, choose to continue to, in his deception uh, and condemn her to death still, and it would still be okay by the community. She lied and you're the truth teller and uh, that's up to you to decide what you wanna do here. However, he makes a startling proclamation. She is more in the right than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. 
Judah's state's uh, statement that she's more on the right than he is is not a statement that she did the right thing. I want to be really clear. There's, there's no, uh, this, this, other than the, his two sons dying, the Bible doesn't make a moral judgment on either of the two characters here. It just states, here's what they've done. You make the decision whether you think it's right or wrong. The Bible often does this where it says, I'm not, we won't tell you if it's right or wrong, but you make the moral decision to train your moral understanding, to train your wisdom, to train your uh, morality around what God says is the right thing, to understand when I'm doing the wrong thing, how do I make moral judgments based upon what I see other people doing and the consequences they reap in their own life. And so here we see that um, in, the, in, in this particular case, Tamar has done what is right and Judah has done what is wrong or more right than his wrong. Judah has neglected her. He's, he's been unfaithful towards what he's supposed to be doing. He's neglected his responsibility. He's been deceptive towards her. Um, and Tamar's intention was, I wanna continue the lineage. I wanna be part of this family that consistently rejects me. I wanna be, I want, I want to be chosen and, and, and to be a part of the, the thing that God is doing in this place. And you continually refuse me, you continually, continually deny me. So I'm coming to take what's mine. The story closes with the birth of twins to Tamar. Um, and Tamar through bold faithfulness to Judah. I want to be really clear. Faithfulness to someone who refused to be faithful to her again and again and again. Secures his lineage and continues the line of Judah through her son Perez all the way to Jesus. She makes way for all of the other women in the lineage of Jesus. She plays the part of the prostitute like Rahab. She's a widow like Ruth and she's taken advantage of like Bathsheba. And the scandalous and unusual circumstances surrounding her pregnancy and marriage pave the way for the mother of Jesus, Mary. And her unusual circumstances around the birth of Jesus. She blunts any potential theological or argument that could happen against Mary because, hey, she's in the lineage of Jesus. Why can't Mary be? She's a Gentile who boldly accepts her role in the family of Judah and she stays faithful even when she has every right to not be. And so in Jesus, we're not suddenly introduced to the outsider or the marginalized or ordinaries, people that God chooses to use. We're not introduced, uh, we're guided after story after story um, to these people uh, who, are, who are being chosen before God would choose the Virgin Mary, people who are deeply flawed, people who are unfaithful and unrighteous, um, who are labelled as part of the lineage of Jesus. Judah's part of the lineage of Jesus. He doesn't really seem like a great guy, does he? Tamar's part, Tamar's part of the lineage of Jesus. She seems like she's had a really, really hard life and she continues to be faithful. And I, I, I guess I, I, I want to like, something that I think is uh, really interesting about Tamar is because of the Gentile heritage that starts Matthew 1, we get a justification for Jesus' commission in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. By the way, four of my descendants were Gentiles. I have the blood of Gentiles in me and therefore you are part of my community and you've been part of my community since the beginning. And so through this uh, story and many other stories in the Bible, we're introduced not to righteous men and women who perfectly obey God and follow God and His commandments, but through imperfect, unrighteous, unfaithful people who God continue to use us. And we, we read in Genesis chapter 50, I'm gonna paraphrase this, Joseph say, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. Yeah. And so in this, in this case, we see what Judah meant for evil, God meant for good. 
And so I wanna uh, propose that this is you and I, not righteous people doing righteous things to try and get a righteous outcome, not faithful people doing faithful things to get a faithful outcome, but unrighteous people and unfaithful people who are continually affected by the faithfulness and righteousness of God because He is the one who is faithful. He is the one who is righteous, not us. And it's His faithfulness and His righteousness that He gives to us and imparts to us so that we can be made righteous, so that we can be made faithful, not now, but in the future. Because we live in this space of, of not yet, but already. Don't we? We, we, we? we trust that God would continue to use us for His glory, not that we've arrived where we already need to be, not that I need to wait for the space that God has called me into and to be in that space to already let God start moving in me, but that He is already on the move now. He's already preparing you. He's already got a plan for you and a purpose for you. Tamar isn't the 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 descendant of Jesus after she has the the uh, after she has the two twins. She's the descendant of Jesus before she's born. She's called and purposed as a descendant of Jesus before she's born, that God has a plan and a purpose for her that is so far out of her control, but she trusts and she is faithful to the calling that she's received. I'm supposed to be a mum as part of the line of Judah. And so I'm gonna have faith and I'm gonna step out in faith and I'm gonna act in faith that this is what I'm supposed to do. I could be killed for this. I could be ridiculed for this. I could be shamed for this. And I'm gonna continue to step out in faith and I'm gonna do what I think is the right thing to do in this space to get the outcome that I've been promised at the beginning. It's not your glory and it's not your perfection that God would use for His glory, it's your wounds that He would use for His glory. It's your imperfections that He would use for His glory. It's your unrighteousness that He would use for His glory, your unfaithfulness that He would use for His glory. Because in your weakness, He is made strong. It's not, it's not our perfection, it's not us doing the right thing, um, coming on church, to church on Sunday, um, praying the right prayers, reading the Bible the way we're supposed to read it. Um, is God, and it's only Him. Um, I, was, uh, I, was, <laughs> I went camping this week at, uh, with uh, a couple of friends um, to just spend time visioning and planning for what God has for the future. Um, and time and time again, it's, it's been really, really easy to, to not step out in faith because I'm not ready. And time and time again, it's really easy to make excuses for why God can't do it or I can't do it. Um, and this year, this year God has a, has a powerful word, I think that uh, matters to all of us. In um, When we submit ourselves humbly before Him, transma- transformation happens. When we step out in, in faith and in humility before God, that's when He starts doing the work because it's not us that is the main activator. It's not us that activates our faith, it's Him. It's not us that is the main mover of God. It's, it's God that's the main mover of God. And so um, this year, I wonder if we can start in, in humility, the way that Judah acts in humility to Tamar, the way that Tamar acts in humility towards Judah. Would we act in that humility towards God? And I've got a, I've got a psalm that I'm gonna put on the screen. And I wonder if you would um, stand and pray this psalm with me. I found uh, recently praying the psalms is, is a powerful way to connect with saints from the centuries before, people who've prayed this prayer and seen God move powerfully in their cities, move powerfully in their lives, move powerfully in their families. Um, And so, yeah, it's on the screen behind me. There's two verses. Um, 
Would you pray this with me? Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in everlasting way.